This is the human side of healthcare, where we explore all aspects of today's ever-changing healthcare environment. Brought to you by the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council and featuring CEO Stephen Love with co-host Thomas Miller. Now, let's make healthcare human again. Welcome to the human side of healthcare. We're delighted you're with us today. You know, it's fall, it's getting cooler, it's that time of the year when you have some of those fall and winter viruses. One of the major ones is strep throat. We're going to be talking with Dr. Curtis Johnson, who's the medical director of emergency services at Medical City North Hills about strep throat and other winter ailments. Dr. Johnson, welcome back. Thank you. You know, a lot of times people have a runny nose, they have sniffles, they have drainage into their throat, their throat gets sore. But when it turns into strep throat, can you explain exactly what strep throat is? Strep throat is when you get an infection in your throat, the posterior portion of your throat, by bacterium, specifically a group A streptococcal bacterium, which is a type of bacteria that can likes to colonize the nose and the throat and can be quite painful and cause you to be fairly sick for a period of time. So how often would you say strep throat occurs in an average individual? It's actually very much more common in children, especially the ages of about 5 to 15. But it can happen to people of any age, especially the parents of school-age children, because they come into contact with the people it primarily strikes, which is school-age children. So it happens fairly frequently. You know, a lot of times, especially in children, you hear of childhood diseases that are pretty contagious. Is strep throat contagious? Yes, very much so. Um, It's especially contagious if you eat after someone who has strep throat, um, also kissing and other things where um, droplets can be transferred from person to person. Is there any way to differentiate a little bit between a sore throat and strep throat? In other words, what are their key symptoms? Well, with strep throat, You can't always be 100% sure, but typically you'll have a really sudden onset of a sore throat. It's painful to swallow. Often you'll have a fever. Um, If you look in the mirror and look in the back of your throat, frequently you'll have white patches or streaks of purulent discharge that are on red swollen tonsils. You can also have some tiny red spots in the roof of your mouth that are called petechiae. Sometimes you'll even get a little swelling in the front of your neck that can uh, result from it. You know, Dr. Johnson, a lot of advances in medicine. I'm an old guy, so I'm going to ask you some old school questions. A friend of mine about, oh, I guess 30 years ago, uh, had a child that had strep throat, and then the child's sister got it, brother got it, and they determined this child was a carrier of strep throat. Is that kind of a tale, or is it true that you could carry strep throat? Yes, you can have people who are colonized with group A strep, and those people typically aren't as sick or even may not even show any signs or symptoms of being ill, and yet they can spread strep. Yes, sir. 
Also, when I was in like the second or third grade, I had a friend of mine, and he had a severe case of strep throat, and it turned into something called rheumatic fever. Do you have that today? Two-part answer to that. One is rheumatic fever is still very possible today. Fortunately, with the advances in antibiotics and testing, it typically does not reach that point, and we're able to treat strep throat before it develops into rheumatic fever. I had a relative, a distant relative, many, many years ago. It was my aunt's fiancé and brother. They got strep throat. It turned into what was known as scarlet fever, and they died. Does that still exist even in third world countries today? Yes. Um, actually, the scarlet fever is typically a rash that goes along with the uh, strep throat. But I think what they probably did have was the rheumatic fever, which causes um, issues with the heart, the brain, the joints. It basically can cause your entire body to shut down as well as it will. You can get post-streptococcal glomerulonephritis, which is a bad uh, reaction that happens to your kidneys and can cause renal failure, which all of those still exist in um, countries where antibiotics are not readily available. So let's fast forward to today here in the United States. If you have strep throat and it goes untreated, what are some of the complications you see as a physician? The most common complications I see as a physician from untreated strep throat is where people will get peritonsillar abscesses, which are abscesses that develop above the tonsils and can cause swelling that can compress the airway, which becomes a medical emergency. That's probably the most severe side effect, which is a relatively early one that I see from strep. And by that point, people are seeking care and we're treating it. And it requires often surgical drainage of the abscess by an ENT. That's probably the most severe uh, side effect I see. We do I do occasionally see patients who have suffered from the kidney issue. I mentioned the glomerulonephritis, but the big one is the abscesses that form in the throat that can close your airway up. You know, we hear a lot today about vaccines. Do you think there'll ever be any research on a potential vaccine for strep throat? It is possible. I don't see any reason why they wouldn't necessarily be able to uh, pursue that line of uh, investigation. It may honestly just be that with the ease of treating with antibiotics, there hasn't been a need to seek that type of thing. Most of the vaccines I know of are either for viruses or for bacteria that are relatively difficult to fight or have rapid onset and fatality. So since strep has been so easily controlled with antibiotics, I think they probably just haven't seen the need to investigate vaccines for it. Let's assume, for example, you have a patient that contracts and is diagnosed with strep throat, let's say October, and you give them a regimen of treatment and they recover. Do they build up any kind of antibodies or could they potentially contract strep throat again, say, in November or December? The answer is they likely would develop a immunity that would protect them for the short term. So 
having it a month or so later, I'd be more likely to think that that person was actually having a recurrence of a viral strep or a viral sore throat and was one of those people you referenced earlier as a carrier. But you can definitely get recurrent strep throat treated and then you just re uh, get reinfected, you know, six, eight months later, get it again. That is not uncommon. It tends to be that people who get strep throat often will get it repeatedly throughout their lives. Have you ever had that happen where you just get an infection time after time? I think we've all experienced that at some point. This is Dr. Curtis Johnson from Medical City North Hills. When we come back, we're going to go to the grocery store. I just got over a little sinus infection myself. So Dr. Johnson is going to walk around the grocery store with us and tell us right there where we would be likely to get infected. A virus-free grocery store trip next on the human side of healthcare. This is the human side of healthcare, where we feature healthcare's hottest topics and what our North Texas area hospitals are doing to make healthcare human again. Welcome back. We're continuing this timely and practical conversation with Dr. Curtis Johnson. He's the Medical Director of Emergency Services at Medical City North Hills. Our topic in this segment, again, is strep throat, especially this time of year. Steve? So let's assume Thomas has strep throat and you treat him for it and he does just fine. But you determine that I am a carrier. Is your treatment of me different regimentally than you would for Thomas? Um, Well, the first time I would still likely treat you with antibiotics. After that, if you're a carrier, the antibiotics are likely doing nothing and I would just tell you to be cautious when you're having the sore throat and to avoid having people eat after you or kissing or anything that would spread the droplets. Dr. Johnson, I need to go to the grocery store and I'd like for you to go with me. Okay. You free? Can, can we go to the grocery store together for a minute? Sure. All right. <laughs> okay. We're getting out of the car and we're walking up to the store. Now, I don't know if you're still wearing a mask after COVID or, you know, a lot of people still are. Some are. But as we enter the grocery store, the first thing we do is we go over and get a cart. Now, take me through where in the store we can get strep. Well, number one, you hit it on the head. When you put your hands on that cart, If I would start off with if there's an alcohol wipe or one of those um, sanitation wipes available, uh, I would wipe off the handle of the cart because that's a very, that's probably the number one spot you're at risk for it. Uh, Then going through the store, pretty much anytime you pick up anything with your hands or you, you know, open a door, Anything like that, you're going to be at risk because your hands are going to come in contact with spots where other people may have coughed into their hands and touched. Especially if you go to the bathroom, heading into the bathroom, those doors, because people who wash their hands are coming out. So going in, typically people have dirty hands. Uh, Then when you get to the, after you've gotten all your uh, groceries at the cash register, you're going to hand your credit card to the person at the register Or maybe you tap and go, and that's a great thing to do. That's actually what I've started doing. But if you do hand your card or any money to the person behind the uh, cash register, they're going to hand you back change or hand you your card back, and they could have now gotten it on there. So cleaning that with an alcohol wipe or something would be a good idea. 
And then as you leave the bags that you're going to have, have a small, very minute, because typically those aren't touched often, but that does have a minute uh, possibility. So doors, grocery cart are the two biggies. And then the um, changes at the uh, register. I mean, if you're the person on the other side, you really need to wash your hands and do good hand sanitation because people who work cash registers are at a very high risk of respiratory bugs because they have such an interaction with the public and take things from them and give them back to them. That was a great walkthrough. That was awesome. Now, one thing we learned from the last two and a half years is that COVID mostly would not have come from a lot of those different contact points, the touch points comes more from that person that sneezed down there in front of the ketchup, right? And guess what we need? Ketchup, right? So you be careful. Okay. What about though, for those points that you just mentioned, the flu, could we get the flu from those same points? Unfortunately, yeah. You're pretty much at the same points that you're at risk for strep throat. You're going to be at risk for influenza. And what about a cold? Just a good old fashioned winter cold. The same thing. Yeah. That's why I was saying they're pretty much the risks for strep throat, influenza, and the common cold are pretty much the same risks and the same preventatives. Okay, so if COVID would be best protected from a mask, let's say, when we go in the store, don't want to get COVID, we're going to wear a mask. If we don't want to get all the things aforementioned, we're going to wash our hands, we're going to be very sanitized there, but also we could be exposed respiratorily, right? So a mask would help there as well. Yes, sir. Steve, I guess I'm going to get a hazmat suit to go to the grocery store here. (laughs) You almost feel like you need one, don't you? (laughs) Every day, man. All right. Well, and see, here's the deal. Psychologically, I remember my mom telling stories back in the day. And of course, this was before all these prolific vaccines came out. So this was a much bigger deal in the 1930s and 40s. But in her family, if somebody got sick, they basically voluntarily quarantined themselves until they were well. Or they quarantined the family. They would send the family to a hotel or something like that. Mm -hmm. Man, today, the attitude is, I'm sorry, I'm sick, I'm going on with my life. And if you cross that person, you're going to get sick. And that's how we do it today. Yeah, it's unfortunate. So it becomes an attitude, doesn't it, of how we're going to psychologically put ourselves out there. Well, and the reality is that people are all amongst us with various things. Yeah. You mentioned tonsils. Should tonsils come out? Tonsils are actually a very good immune organ. If they have, if they've swollen, gotten big, um, if they're causing trouble with breathing, they can cause in some people snoring, sleep apnea, things like that, then yes. But just uh, taking them out as a matter of just general practice, I would say no. They, they should come out when they're appropriately causing an issue. So yes, they should come. And when the ENT tells you you need to have your tonsils out, then they're telling you medically it's causing an issue. And I would say yes, they need to come out. But I'm, I don't think just going and randomly going, oh, I want my tonsils out is necessarily a good thing if you're not having issues from the tonsils. Yeah, Dr. Johnson, I had my tonsils out as a young, ch- young child, 
and they took my adenoids out. And I asked later in life, why'd they do that? Well, whenever you take tonsils out, you take adenoids out. Is that same medical procedure in place today? I believe it is. Yeah, the tonsils and adenoids kind of roll together like bread and butter. Okay, great. I, I learned something, Thomas. See, <laughs> well, that's why we do the human side of healthcare, so we can learn things, right? You know, one other thing, Doctor Johnson, that we've learned a lot over the last two years is building up immunities. Is there a way to build up immunity to strep? I don't know a definitive way to do that. There are some people that just like with other things, tend to be more immune to it than others just from some fluke of their immune system. But I don't know that there's a way you can say, well, if I do this, that it will build up my immunity. I mean, I'm, I am a believer in like, you know, vitamin C to just kind of boost your immune system, but I can't quote uh, medical, uh, medical research articles to prove that that's just how I was raised and I don't see any harm in it. Yeah. So everything you can do, in other words, that we already know, and we've learned a lot these last two years about trying to boost immunity. Well, just apply it here too. Exactly. All right. Great. Thank you so much. This has been very educational. I got my flu shot last month, September, and I was talking to a friend of mine and said, Wow, you got it way too early. You should wait till November because flu season's so long. So I'm going to ask you, the expert, an emergency room doctor, when do you recommend flu shots? I recommend flu shots in September. Well, this year especially, because I'll be honest with you, we never saw the flu season go away. Normally around April very, very beginning of May, I'll see my last case of flu, and then I won't see it again until September or October. And this year, I have had positive flus throughout the summer, July, August, September, and in fact, several in September. And it takes about two weeks for your flu shot to kick in and build up to your max immunity. So I advise getting it in September. The thought process on, oh, you got it too early, it's going to wane. Honestly, we're probably getting microdosed throughout the year if we're coming into contact with it. So I think that that's going to keep, keep your immunity boosted up with those microdosing exposures that, uh, to something you're immune to kind of keeps your mind and your immune system to stay amped up. So I don't think you can really, you know, if you were going to get a flu shot, go off into space for six months. Yeah, you got it too early. But if you're living amongst human beings uh, in, during, in the winter during flu season, uh, getting it in September is the appropriate time in my mind. You know, you've done a great job of answering a lot of questions about strep throat, and it is very serious. But do you have any final thoughts to the listeners, parents, children, etc.? on strep throat and prevention? This is kind of funny because it seems to be the same thing we see we say for everything, but it's especially true with strep throat. The best way to prevent it is covering your mouth and nose. If you cough or sneeze, get disposing of uh, used tissues, sneezing into your upper sleeve, elbow, if you don't have a tissue, washing your hands with soap and water. Same things we say for COVID and same things we say for the flu applies to strep throat. This has been Dr. Curtis Johnson from Medical City North Hills. 
a great conversation about a topic that could show up under your roof this fall. This interview and all of our interviews are on our podcast and our YouTube channel, The Human Side of Healthcare. Let's go down to the hills, Stephenville. We're going to talk about our heart, taking good care of it, eliminating cholesterol, and what happens if you had a heart-related emergency. All of that next on The Human Side of Healthcare. Welcome back to The Human Side of Healthcare, where we explore how to take better care of your health so you can live a happier, healthier life. With DFW Hospital Council CEO, Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. Welcome back. Delighted you're with us today. And we want to talk a little bit about cholesterol, heart attacks, and CPR. It's so important that our listeners know about this. We're delighted we have Dr. Brandy Williams with us. She's a cardiologist at Texas Health Harris Methodist Hospital in Stephenville. Dr. Williams, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me today. You know, I know you've been a practicing cardiologist for at least 10 years. You've seen a lot of technological advancements over the years. But can you give us the latest on treatments on how you focus on lowering cholesterol. Definitely. So um, elevated cholesterol or hyperlipidemia, it really means that the blood has too much fat or lipids. And many times your doctor first recommend lifestyle changes such as diet and exercise. But if that doesn't work, they may prescribe medications called statins to lower the cholesterol. If statins can't be tolerated, there's a new exciting class of medications called PCSK9 inhibitors that bind to bad cholesterol and lower the cholesterol levels, but don't have the side effects of statins. Well, that's terrific. So there are ways to focus on uh, cholesterol levels. And I know every year, September is National Cholesterol Educational Month, and I know we've passed that. But there are concerning statistics we need to be aware of. Can you share some of those with our listeners? Yes, sir. Nearly 94 million U.S. adults age 20 and older have high cholesterol. And one in three adult Texans have high cholesterol. So it's very prevalent in the United States and in Texas. So can you explain to me, Dr. Williams, how does high cholesterol lead to a heart attack? High cholesterol can lead to a heart attack when a hard plaque of cholesterol breaks open and a blood clot may form on top of that plaque and block the blood flow to the arteries that sit around the heart. Without oxygen, the heart becomes weak or damaged, and this can lead to chest pain and even a heart attack. You know, when you think in terms of cholesterol, What are some of the things individuals can do to be proactive to try to lower cholesterol? First, I think it's really important, like American Heart Association says, is know your numbers. And basically, that means know your cholesterol numbers and what they mean for you. Um, high cholesterol really has no symptoms, so some many people don't even know they have high cholesterol until it's tested in their physician's office. And a simple blood test can check those levels and get you on the right way to treating it. Um, eating a heart-healthy diet that emphasizes fruits, vegetables, whole grains, poultry, and fish. And uh, again, the American Heart Association recommends limiting saturated fat to less than 6% of your daily calories. 
You want to also become physically active, at least 150 minutes of moderate intensity exercise in a week. You know, I have a friend of mine who uh, has cholesterol and works closely with his primary care physician. One of the things that he actually uses as over-the-counter to help, red yeast rice, is that something you'd recommend? There have been studies that looked at red yeast rice, fish oil, uh, vitamin E, and none of the those medica- none of those medications have really proven to help. The only one that has really proven to help would be fish oil. Um, so red yeast rye has really not proven to be helpful at this point. Well, that's good to know. And I know our listeners out there want to understand the relationship between high cholesterol and heart attacks, which also leads us to another discussion, and that's dealing with CPR. What is the difference in your mind between bystander CPR and emergency CPR? Yes, sir. Heart attacks can sometimes lead to bad rhythms of your heart, and that can cause the heart to stop beating. That's also called cardiac arrest. Uh, There's more than 350,000 cardiac arrests that occur outside of the hospital each year. And CPR, cardiopulmonary resuscitation, is administered immediately after cardiac arrest, and that can double a person's chance of survival. Uh, Bystander CPR is a little bit different than hospital CPR. In bystander CPR, it's a person who witnessed an adult suddenly collapse. Um, You should always call 911 first, and then when you start bystander CPR, it requires no mouth-to-mouth. You want to push hard and fast in the center of the chest, until help arrives. In your opinion, is there a reluctance or hesitancy for bystanders to perform CPR on women versus men? Yes, and this has actually been looked at in a recent study. Um, Men are more likely to receive bystander CPR than women. Uh, 45% of males receive bystander CPR, while only 39% of women receive the same CPR. And studies show that some of the fears of performing CPR on women are, um, I will be accused of inappropriate touching, or I will be sued if I hurt a woman, um, or even I may physically injure the woman. Um, And really to rectify these fears, we need to, to reassure the public that women need CPR too. And it's really important for their survival. And that Um, you increased the women's survival um, with just performing the hand-to-hand CPR and no mouth-to-mouth CPR. And the public should also remember that there's a good Samaritan laws, and these often protect those that perform CPR on, on cardiac arrest patients. You know, if you're a bystander and you perform the bystander CPR, and there are at least two or three people there that know how to perform that CPR, should you trade off every couple of minutes so that people rest a little bit and you're maximizing the CPR on the patient? Yes, sir. Uh, We recommend that um, after every cycle of 30 that you try to um, go with someone else that's standing nearby if they know CPR as as well. Um, We like to say that when you're doing the chest compressions, you sing a song in your head, staying alive, staying alive, and that keeps you in rhythm of pushing strong and hard um, so that you can increase the flow of the heart and to the body. 
Yeah, it's excellent advice. And I've heard that often about the BG, staying alive is, is, is really a good way to measure that. But let's talk numbers a little bit more. You know, we talk about CPR, we talk about survival rates. Can you elaborate a little bit on the relationship between CPR survival rates, not only in the U.S., but if you have those numbers for Texas? Yes, sir. So CPR is really the key to survival of a cardiac arrest. Uh, survival rate of out-of-the-hospital cardiac arrest is only about 12%. But CPR can double or even triple the chances of survival. And really, those numbers are consistent with Texans, too. You know, I want to circle back a little bit and discuss cholesterol. If your parents or siblings have high cholesterol, is there a chance you will? In other words, is it hereditary? Some forms of high cholesterol can be hereditary, um, and diet and exercise may not completely uh, correct the high cholesterol numbers. But many times high cholesterol is what we call multifactorial. It's maybe related to genetics or the way someone eats or their lifestyle. You know, I know as a cardiologist, you deal with a lot more than just high cholesterol. So to our listeners out there, what is your advice to them to have good heart health? I think really the take-home points um, is knowing your numbers like we discussed earlier, knowing cholesterol levels, blood pressure levels, weight, blood sugar, and really discuss those numbers with your physician. Uh, getting these numbers in normal range, it can lower your risk of heart attack and even death. And I think the second take-home point is about bystander CPR and how important it is to the survival of cardiac arrest victims and that it doesn't require mouth-to-mouth. And don't forget that women need CPR too. Dr. Williams, this is Thomas. You were talking earlier about the formation of the plaque, then the blood vessel ruptures, and then heart attack. Is that what's known as the widowmaker? No, not necessarily. The widow maker is an artery that goes down the front part of the heart. Um, it's called the LAD or left anterior descending. It's an artery that feeds the majority part of the left side of the heart. Um, and plaque can form and you can have heart attacks in any artery around the heart. So it's not necessarily the widow maker. I'd like to visualize in my mind where this happens. Where in the body is this taking place? So the arteries sit around the heart muscle, and that provides the muscle with the needed blood flow for it to pump and have action and do what it needs to do. And the cholesterol builds up in the arteries that sit around the heart, and it's plaque that really builds up on the sidewalls of the artery. And that plaque may sit there for years, and sometimes that plaque may rupture, um, and it releases its enzymes, and it calls its buddies called platelets to try to fix that area and then it calls more buddies until those blood clots build up around that broken area and that really leads to a heart attack it leads to decreased flow to the arteries that sit around the heart with those widow makers we're talking about something that is teeny tiny i mean like the tip of a pencil right it's just such small a small area that can be blocked that's the widow maker what's the size of these arteries that you're talking about outside the heart so these are the widow maker is also outside the heart um, so there's three main arteries that sit around the heart two on the left side of the heart and one on the right they all supply 
blood to the muscle that sits around the heart. And so Widowmaker is just one of those arteries. So this plaque can form in any of those arteries around the heart and can lead to a heart attack. And that's a substantial amount of plaque then that's built up in there. Yes, sir. It can build up along the artery and it can build up in one small area or it can build up throughout the artery. We're talking with Dr. Brandy Williams from Texas Health Heart and Vascular Specialists in Stephenville. This is on our podcast, The Human Side of Healthcare, and on our YouTube channel under the same name. When we come back, a test that you can get that can help show whether you are subject or prone to a heart attack. Next on The Human Side of Healthcare. Covering the healthcare topics that matter most to North Texas. This is the human side of healthcare with DFW Hospital Council CEO Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. Welcome back. We have so much good information here from Dr. Brandy Williams. Heart health is so critical for us to be able to enjoy our later years, see our grandkids, etc. So let's jump right back into it. She is with Texas Health Heart and Vascular Specialists in Stephenville. And Dr. Williams, we were talking in that last segment about the plaque that forms in these little tiny arteries outside of our heart that can rupture and cause a heart attack. People are probably thinking, oh my gosh, every French fry, every piece of pizza, every scoop of ice cream or drive through driven through is going to come back and get me. Is this a quick onset or is this truly a lifetime of accumulation that builds? It usually happens over years. So we sometimes don't know how long it's been building before a person has a heart attack. And it is foods that are fast foods and things like that that help contribute to it. But many people can eat those things in moderation, but you just have to be smart with how much you're eating. Is there a ramp up effect as we get older? So do we get away with it until we're in our 50s and then all of a sudden payback time? Yeah, many times as you get older age, those arteries start to clog up faster and uh, heart attacks are more prevalent the older you get. You and Steve talked about knowing the numbers, knowing your cholesterol numbers, knowing your blood sugar numbers, etc. What kind of difference can this make to people in terms of length of years, quality of life? Like, why should we know our numbers? Yeah, so like the American Heart Association's um, says that knowing those numbers is super important. Uh, cholesterol level, blood pressure, knowing your weight or what also called the BMI, knowing your blood sugar and knowing if you have diabetes or not. All of these things, um, when you discuss them with your physician, you'll know the right numbers for you and how to treat them. And getting these numbers in the normal range can lower your risk of heart attack and it can even lower your risk of death. What are the current cholesterol numbers? Because as I'm remembering, they've been coming down over the years of where you want us to be. Is that correct? Definitely want to be less than 200 on your total cholesterol. Uh, There's also a bad cholesterol called your LDL. And there's a good cholesterol that we actually want to be higher. It's called your HDL, and it's really protective. So um, your doctor will sit down, go over those numbers, and let you know what the right level for you is. Once you've had a heart attack or a heart event, those levels of what your goal we want you to be actually changes. So we want to go over with the with your cardiologist, with your physician, and make sure it's the right number for you. Now, you were dancing around this. Where does cholesterol come from? I think we all know that you said that anything with a drive-through is suspicious. Where else can it come from? Well, it's definitely smoking, um, eating poorly. Uh, not exercising and gaining weight. 
all of those things will make the plaque form. Uh, definitely eating stuff like fried foods, heavy saturated foods. You want to try to stay away from that as much as possible. Uh, that's what helps those lipids form in the bloodstream, and then it attaches to the arteries around the whole body, whether that be the heart, whether they be the arteries in the neck, or even the arteries in the leg. We all talk about moderation. And you even mentioned it. You know, you said you can eat that in a little bit. What in your, as a cardiologist, what is moderation to you? Moderation may be different for each person depending on their levels of cholesterol or their blood sugar levels. Uh, we really want to focus on a low saturated fat, saturated diet. Um, you, you don't, you want to eat um, less than 6% of your daily calories to be saturated fat. And a lot of those saturated fats and unsaturated fats, they come in fast foods, fried foods, and things like that. So that's why we really emphasize a diet with fruits, vegetables, and really fish and chicken, and really grilled more than fried. We we like to emphasize having the grilled foods than more than the fried foods. And we always encourage and quit smoking and to lose weight. And as little as 5 to 10% weight loss can improve your cholesterol numbers uh, drastically. Wow, that's awesome. I just happened to land on a website that's a respectable website while you and Steve were talking, healthgrades.com, and I looked at the top prescription drugs in the United States. Six of the top ten are related to the heart, and uh, statin is the first one, and it just goes on down from there. There's a lot of information out on statins now. They are widely prescribed And yet you get online and some websites say don't take statins. Some say absolutely you must take statins. Can you cut through the maze of all the things that, I mean, this is one of the most researched drugs in the world. Yeah, so statins have been around a long time. They're very good drugs and they really help a lot of people reduce their cholesterol. Um, There are people who can't tolerate statins, whether that be muscle fatigue or muscle cramping. Uh, So there is that new class of medications I talked about earlier, the PCSK9 inhibitors. These are actually injections that you take uh, twice a month or once a month, depending on your dosing. It binds to that bad cholesterol and helps lower the cholesterol levels. So I do think there's new studies coming out, new drugs coming out. Uh, But it's important to talk to your physician about which one is right for you. How long has that class been available? Been available about five to six years. Um, Really starting to prescribe it more and more over the last couple of years. Um, So it's becoming more prevalent. And are you seeing a good effect from it? I am. I'm seeing a very good effect. I'm seeing cholesterol levels drop drastically uh, with this medication and avoiding the statin side effects of muscle fatigue, cramping, and, and other side effects that statins may cause. Is there any way if that plaque gets built up in your artery that it can be reversed? I think the reversal is not the focus of many cardiologists. I think it's preventing the fact, the preventing the plaque from further forming and causing more trouble. Um, And that's why we use medications we do such as statins and aspirin and other medications uh, to help prevent another heart attack. Hey, let me ask you a question. There's a test that I've had actually twice called the CT angiogram or CT angiography. Man, it showed no blockage. So I feel confident that I'm not going to conk over from a widow maker. What are your thoughts on that test? 
Yeah, right. CT angiography can definitely be used to look for blockages in the arteries around the heart. Basically, it's a CAT scan of the heart that we do 3D imaging, and we look at the arteries and look how much plaque and blockage is built up. Only downside to that is that if we do find the blockage, we can't fix it at the same time as we can when we do an angiogram or heart catheterization, where we go up in there and shoot dye in the arteries around the heart, take pictures of the heart, and if we find the blockage, we can fix it at the same time. So that's the only downside to the CT angiogram. Quick little sidestep here. Have you seen any trends, numbers, or indications that there are more clot-related issues out there now? Yes, there has been an uptick in clot-related heart attacks that we have seen that has been related to COVID-19. Um, During COVID-19, there's a lot of inflammation in the body. Clots tend to form is what we're finding. And we have seen seen, uh, more heart attacks and strokes during that time. So if somebody had COVID, should they be on blood thinner treatment of some kind? Many times after people have COVID and they're discharged, they are on blood thinners or put on aspirin when they leave the hospital. I think it's important to follow up with your physician and make sure that those blood thinners are appropriate for you after discharge. You know, while we were dealing with the pandemic, we were trying to get through the pandemic. Now we're able to look back on it. Do you think this is something that cardiology will be looking at more as long-term after effects of COVID and this propensity perhaps to clot? Definitely. I think the American College of Cardiology has always been very good at researching topics and having large number of patients in their research protocols so that we get the right medications for our patients. And uh, I think they'll continue to do that with the after effects of COVID-19. Yeah. A lot more learning to be done, right? Yes, sir. Hey, one more before we go here. What about vaping? We know smoking is bad. What about vaping? Any studies on that? They have shown some evidence in some early trials. I think that it's still being investigated further. Um, But I I do think vaping in later on, we're going to see that it further damages the heart arteries and the lungs. But that's that's really still an early investigation. This has been great information. Dr. Brandy Williams from Texas Health Heart and Vascular Specialists in Stephenville. Thank you, Thomas. Great information today. You know it's already November, so if you haven't had your flu shot, please talk to your physician or pharmacist and give it serious consideration. We want you to stay well for the holidays. Join us next week for the human side of health care.